Hey all, welcome back to Bulls with the Bard. My name is Cakes, I am your host. Today we continue our conversation about problem plays with a discussion about The Tempest. The Tempest is not technically a problem play, but we'll dig into that a little bit later. First, I would like to introduce you to the folks who are going to talk about The Tempest with us. Today, we have two returning friends to the podcast, which is so exciting. First, we have Rania Brown. Rania, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Rania. It rhymes with Korea. I'm from Lexington, Kentucky. I live in D.C. I'm, I'm currently in Arizona, but I live in D.C. And I like to label myself as a classical actor, but more and more I'm starting to really crave new plays or or just simply contemporary plays. So yeah, I'm I'm an actor, but Shakespeare, classical plays, but more specifically Shakespeare is my bread and butter. That's that's where my heart is. So you know, I do it all except sing. <laughs> that's fair. That shit's hard. <laughs> y- yes. <laughs> awesome. Our second guest with us today is Aloha. Aloha, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, everybody. It's so good to be back. I'm Aloha Rasmussen. My full name is Logan Uhibai Oaloha My Lenny Rasmussen. I use she, her pronouns, and I am a Kanaka Maoli Native Hawaiian actor based in Chicago. Uh, really similarly to everyone in this room, Shakespeare is my bread and butter. I love classical work, but because I'm in Chicago and I've been working in Chicago for about a year now, new plays have been a really big part of my life recently as well. And uh, I've gotten to do some world premieres, which has been really special. So I'm starting to expand past Shakespeare, but it, it's always my first love to come right back to classical. So I'm excited to to chat about some classical work today. Very cool. I am stoked to have you both back on the show. Before we hop into talking about The Tempest, I'm going to get a little high. I don't know what y'all brought with you. What do you got? Seltzer. I had an edible. Hell yeah. We love, (laughs) I love it when edibles kick in throughout the show. It's very fun. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm a lightweight. So they're like 0.5 milligrams. So like, It takes no time, but uh, (laughs) it is just right for me. All right, y'all. We are nice and high slash drunk and ready to talk about The Tempest. So, like I said at the beginning of the episode, The Tempest is not technically a problem play. And as we've talked this season, we've kind of looked at two different definitions of problem plays. One that says a problem play is a play that, like, it's hard to tell. Is it a comedy? Is it a tragedy? I don't don't really know. And another that's like a problem play is a play that presents material that's kind of problematic for the time period in which it's being presented um so I guess my first question is like does the tempest fit into one or both of those categories and like how do you think it does or doesn't aloha do you want to get us started sure yeah uh well it's a hard question because I think a lot of the time when people in general are approaching Shakespeare they're like, God, that's so outdated, out of touch. And a lot, especially being like a woman of color who's like passionately, ardently defending, like do classical work. I have this conversation a lot with myself where like a lot of these plays are problematic. And I, I would call plays like this problem plays by your second definition of the word, because the material that we are presenting now is of course not in touch and not aligned with the issues that are presented to us right now in our world. For The Tempest, like colonialism in general, but like really intricately, like the characters of like the native characters in The Tempest. Candidly, when I started to get really obsessed with Shakespeare and I I started my journey (laughs) into Shakespeare, I was in high school 
and I was reading all of like the, the popular plays, you know, like R&J, Mackers, Twelfth Night and Tempest and all of these. I got to the Tempest and I was like, for some reason, and I didn't know at the time, I was like, I do not like this play. And everyone was like, oh my God, the Tempest, the Tempest, this shit is so good. Can I cross? This yeah, oh, so yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and people were like, ah, oh, the magic, you know, the grandeur. It's so Shakespeare. It's so fun. And I just could not get behind it. It's like still to this day, I mean, remains one of those shows that I'm not really like, yeah, Tempest. Um, and when you asked me to do the podcast, I was like, time to look back at the Tempest. It's been a while. <laughs> I really hadn't examined until you asked me to be back on talking about Tempest, why I had such a discomfort with the play in general throughout my entire time, like really loving Shakespeare. Tempest was just something I didn't love. And I think it is because of those problematic themes and, and character uh, stereotypes that are present in the play. But I didn't know that when I was 17. So I'm really excited for this conversation. Uh, because I'm excited to learn from people who know a lot more about this play than I do. And also just maybe convince myself that I'm not as crazy cuckoo bananas as I thought for having <laughs> surrounding this display in general. No, no, I, I do not think you are. Um, and <laughs> I'm, I'm excited to explore this with you knowing that it's kind of a new exploration for you. That's really cool. Rania, would you like to add anything to that? Yeah, I think, you know, how how we define one of Shakespeare's, like if it's a comedy or if it's a tragedy, a comedy, someone gets married, tragedy, people die. People don't die in this play. Therefore, it's not a tragedy. And there is a marriage here. Therefore, it is a comedy. And, and I, I do I do think the play is, is a comedy. It is filled with, you know, uh, laughter. People are learning from their mistakes. They, you know, redeem themselves. And... I think that it isn't like Romeo and Juliet where people say it's a comedy until it's not. And that is a tragedy. But throughout The Tempest, you're never thinking, okay, everything's going downhill from, from here. Uh, someone, mm. er, everyone walks away with something, um, even if it's minimal. So I, I, I wouldn't call it a problem play. I would say that it's a comedy and by our our standards like you were saying aloha in this current time it has problems yeah yeah that feels about right to me i agree that it doesn't ever feel like it swings to a place of tragedy there's definitely places that feel uncomfortable but never quite tragic so i guess jumping off of that idea that like this play has problems it's got some of the more like obvious problematic material like the colonialism issues like Caliban's attempted assault of Miranda and all the conversation that's kind of had around it but then there are also some more nuanced conversations that I think can be less obvious to people like Sebastian or Sebastian Stefano and Trinculo introducing alcohol to Caliban a native islander um like Prospero putting his daughter to sleep whenever he doesn't want to deal with the conversation she's trying to have. Little things like that, that like we maybe don't even think about because of the bigger issues that present themselves. And I'm curious if you think there is a way to address all of it when you're producing this play, or if you think you kind of have to pick and choose which of those issues you really want to address. Rania, do you want to start us off on that one? Sure. You know, I think it's about intention, the intention of the line and the physical intention. And I think, you know, your, your example of, of Prospero putting Miranda to sleep, this is after he's unloaded an immense amount of information that, uh, about her past that she doesn't know who he was, where they're from, what her station is, why they're on the island, who he was hurt by. You know, so he's, he's also tapping back into her memory by saying, do you remember when you were like tiny, tiny? You probably, you probably don't remember us even getting on the boat. But she, she does have some information about like, oh, right, weren't, weren't there also 
women, like who people who looked like me. Uh, so with all of this information and tapping back into the past, and when he knows I've shared this with her, and now I need to get down to business, I need to put her to sleep. That's that's how I see it, and sort of that's how we've this production of the Tempest that I was working on. It was so kind and gentle. Hmm. How um, Eric Kissin, the actor who played Prospero, puts Megan Graves, the actor who played Miranda, um, to sleep. He does it with care. And to me, Rania, I see, I see a father who says, "Okay, I have power and control over this being that I'm calling." And if Miranda knows about that, then maybe it'll open her mind, her interest to magic. Not that that's a problem, but there's good magic, there's dark magic. Mm -hmm. um, do I want her to, to begin to treat people the way I treat people? Prospero starts to notice that he does go a little mad with, with, with magic, I think, mad with magic. Maybe he doesn't want that for her. Maybe he thinks, you know, I tell Ariel to bring me back a hot dog and Ariel will. Uh, who knows what Miranda may start to ask for. Can you take me here? Can you take me to Timbuktu? You know, <laughs> I think from my perspective, I, I try to see the positives in things that might seem like it's a problem. Uh, what is the intention behind it is, is sort of what I go off of. And the, and the same thing with Trinculo and Stefano. I think for them, it's like, this is what we do when we party. This is how we show uh, camaraderie. Um, this is what we do when we when we have fun. So, and this is what we do when we when we relax. Oh, this creature is terrified in this storm. Let him drink of my bottle. I'll I'll give him whatever is in this. So I think again, it's you know not anything forceful to to control Caliban, uh, but to help him or it, it you know whoever Caliban is to help them relax and and to show. Uh, camaraderie or, or kindness so that's that's kind of what I think that's a long-winded way of me saying I think it has to do with the intention interesting yeah I think that's a nice way of addressing especially some of the like more underlying issues I feel like it could it, it could get a little like sticky and sure a tangly <laughs> if you try to address everything in a way that's like more pointed, I suppose. So I kind of like the idea of like thinking about where the characters are coming from when they make those decisions. Aloha, do you have anything you want to add? Yeah, absolutely agreeing with the intention behind the work. I think that, you know, as artists, there are definitely things that, because I always say Shakespeare is dead, what is he going to do? You know, there are things that we have license and liberty to really to work with and if there's something in a script or a play specifically in classical work that we're like that's just something I have no idea how to grapple you have a conversation about it you work with it and you create something that makes people feel safe in that environment like it should never branch into people feeling unsafe and I think that starts with the bodies that you have in the room the people you cast uh the the story that you want to build and then just being open to suggestion from your cast and crew i've been in shakespeare shows or been in like productions where it has not been that way hmm. where it's like we're sticking to the you know whatever holy like shakespeare doctrine we think we're holding and then i have been in productions where that has not been the case and how it's like how can we shift this to support this person in the role because we're seeing different bodies different um cultures different experiences playing roles that those bodies did not occupy before and i think that just like renia said with intention you can shift the ideas surrounding some of these things although i think some of the things uh for myself if i were to even attempt to put on a production of the show some of these things in general would would be I would almost intentionally kind of shine light hmm. on certain themes uh, in The Tempest, such as in the text, just the way that the way that Caliban speaks versus the way that Ariel speaks. And what does that entail for these two being the representation of these native, you know, beings and their reaction to suppression and their reaction to, you know, 
strangers in strange lands coming to their space. I think that for me, sometimes it's a great opportunity to shine a light on those more difficult themes instead of changing them and shying away from them, really leaning in and even to the point of some people being uncomfortable to show that progress is different than just ignoring difficult, problematic tropes. I vibe with that. I have been in this play twice, and the second time I played Sebastian. And Sebastian has some racist-ass text that gets cut a lot. And my director was like, no, we're doing this in Baltimore. We're going to embrace the fact that that is something that Shakespeare wrote, and that is something that is he is having a character say. And it was very interesting to perform that text for Black audiences and feel the tension in the room go up when I said those lines and be like, oh, hmm, it's interesting that this character is aligned with like the quote unquote bad guys in this play. And that so frequently we cut texts like that, like, does the racism not align with the character that is being presented? I, I feel like it does. So I I fully, fully agree with that. I think there's so much value to approaching Shakespeare that way. Who do we become? We become these editors of history. Uh, you know, there there is a reason why uh, we still compare politicians' speeches to Hitler's speeches. Like, if there are similarities and differences, we should know that, be aware of that you know, maybe we don't want history to repeat itself. So yeah, I feel, I feel kind of weird about that too, of like, whether they're protagonists or antagonists, like, who are these, who are these people that we're dealing with? What kind of characters are they? So yeah, I just think we get into a weird spot when we start removing things that were in service to the story. There's a reason why they're there. Also on the flip side of that, we have like villainous characters saying villainous things or things that make people uncomfortable. Uh, we also have characters specifically in Shakespeare's that are set up in the text to be protagonists that do, you know, questionable at best and terrible at worst things to people and to themselves. And clearly, oh, sometimes we try to cut the protagonist's nasty things. But I think something that, that kind of sets Shakespeare apart or the texts of Shakespeare apart from some of his other contemporaries and even some stuff that we see today is that they always say like he was writing the human condition. And I think that those protagonists like Prospero in the show is set up to be, you know, the protagonist to have the hero's journey, to have the arc at the end where he's absolved and, and you know, gets to move on. And throughout the show, like, does textually, like, is angry and snippy and controlling and power hungry. And I think that to shift away or to muddle that would do be a disservice to the character, even if that is your protagonist. To show that this character is flawed and this character is can be dangerous and harmful to other people is way more expressive of a human condition than polishing your protagonist and then making Caliban this like dastardly, horrible, ir irredeemable creature. That actually does worse for stereotypes and uh, the messages that modern audiences are looking for today than mapping over and letting those nasty things kind of come over. Amen. I guess kind of latching on to that uh, complicated protagonist that we've got. Rania, you just assistant directed a production of this play that to me, like justified this play continuing to be done. It was like the best version of this play I've ever seen. Um, and we can get a little bit more into your handling of Prospero in a minute. But first, I just wanted you to talk a little bit about your experience working on this production at the temp of the Tempest. I believe it was Roundhouse and the Folger that put this on. Yeah, this 
play opened my eyes to things, so many things that I missed uh, that were right in front of me because I've done The Tempest a couple times. But talking to Aaron Posner, who directed the production, along with Teller, co-directors, I never expected to see, you never really expect to see magic happen in front of you in The Tempest. It's like, we're going to see a play. We're obviously going to suspend our disbelief. Like, okay, Prospero has a wand and he's moving it about. And like, we imagine magic is happening. And, you know, Aaron said, well, why, why do we not have actual magic? And this production has been um, reimagined a couple of times, but that, that was always at the base, that there is real magic happening here. So that was new to me. <laughs> um, uh, Nate Dindy, who plays Pros I mean, who plays Ariel, just a master of magic. And uh, to watch to watch him um, not just do these tricks, but again, the intention behind them and how they're done and with care, there were pieces of magic that made me look at characters differently or made me look at what was happening different uh, differently. One of my favorite parts of the play is when Ferdinand notices that, you know, these voices are calling to him um, and singing to him these what sound like sirens. And he is grieving his father who he believes is lost. And now he has to step up and, you know, he'll, he'll become king. But he has some text, but there's this uh, piece of magic that happens where his father's crown falls on his head. It just made me feel um, so much pain and anguish and loss because that's how much care was being put into the act of it. So I, I learned a lot through magic. Um, there's a lot of movement in this play using, uh, in our version, using the company, dance company, Palopolis. Matt and Renee were choreographers, but to have a, a two-person Caliban uh, who, who are constantly connected. Yeah, it, right? It Wild. was amazing. Um, amazing. Like, unlike anything I'd ever seen on stage. They were constantly connected. You know, these are, these are brothers. So instead of like a two-headed being, you, it looks like you have a, just a two-person being, whatever that's called. I don't know. Um, I don't play enough video games to know uh, <laughs> names of, of beings like that. But that, what what does that mean to push to push the body to the limit? What makes us different as beings moving on this on this earth? And uh, the music, there is so much music in Shakespeare. I think we forget that. I think we forget about that. All of these songs um, in these plays, and most of the time they're cut. And there were um, some pieces that were inserted in this show, but also the pieces that were already written. Um, and what does what does music do to the air? Um, does it lure us? Does it compel us? Does it turn us away? Does it influence? And so my brain was splattered everywhere because every day I came in with like, okay, um, how is the magic serving this scene? There's also the story, right? How do you, so what I was uh, really blown away by is how Aaron and Teller were able to uh, keep a solid story in with all of these elements and to not have either overcome. They were all running on the same, on the same level. Uh, storytelling is in everything instead of like, here's a scene, here's a song, here's some magic, here's a scene, right? Like it's, it is storytelling at its best. And so I learned, I learned, of course, more about forgiveness and redemption in this story and relationships, but also like different ways to tell a story. Hmm. Yeah, I left that production and I like absolutely agree with you. Like I was expecting to go in and be like, I'm gonna see some cool magic tricks, but I don't know if that's gonna be in service of the story. And the one that I walked away from the play with that I was like, this is brilliant storytelling using the magic was like putting Ariel back in the cloven pine. 
that then like twisting his box yes it was disturbing and awful and like it clearly illuminated a piece of prospero's character in that Mm. moment and at the same time was a moment that i was like how are they doing this (laughs) like like obsessively trying to figure out how it's happening while also being like holy shit this is such a cool character choice and there was a lot of that with Prospero in this production I felt like this was the most thoughtful and nuanced approach to Prospero I have ever seen as a character that like I kind of walked into the production being hard and fast like I hate Prospero he is the worst and I left being like I don't know if I like him anymore but I feel like I understand where he might be coming from a little bit better and so I'm I'm curious like the approach to him felt very modern and I know that like bits of this play were kind of passed down from different iterations of the the teller version what kinds of conversations were y'all having in the room about him as a character and was this version of him like seemingly at least from what I could tell like a dying Prospero was that idea new or was it something that was handed down and like workshopped from there? Um, That's a great question. So what had happened was the first (laughs) week of the show, uh, of of rehearsal table work, and I was in New Jersey doing a production of The Wolves. So I wasn't there there just yet. (laughs) But there were a lot of things in this play that I, I wanted to, I had questions about as far as, you know, the questions that I have for for Aaron, but also things that I wanted to solve to figure out on my own so that I could offer something into the room. And so I never asked about Prospero, but I watched and I heard what Hissam was saying, what he was working from. And one of the major layers uh, that I'll talk about is uh, him being a father and of his a father of his age. He knows that he's on a decline uh, as far as his age and also uh, the way that he uses power. He has used so much power and now each time, um, especially using power in a, in a harmful or hurtful way, it then does something to him, to him internally, to his, to his body, to his health. And so the the more energy he uses to hurt or to harm or to control, it affects him. And so he's getting older, not in the best health. And so we can imagine in the next X years that he's going to die. But he has a child. Who's going to look after her? And, you know, in that time, it's like, I know you'll have a husband and he'll take care of you, you know, but... (laughs) You know, again, of that time, but uh, it it is it is like she does have family. Introducing her to her family, I know that she'll be taken care of. Oh, and she's interested in in this guy, and this guy is interested in her. Great, wouldn't that be nice if she has a husband? So that is something that I saw Eric working with, and that I heard him talking about and and delving into. That's one of the major layers that I think made this Prospero more human um, is that we saw him being a father. And we don't see, I think in some productions you see Prospero in, com- in different compartments like dad in this moment, ruler in this moment, tyrant in this moment, abuser in this moment. And I think Eric did a great job of simply making him human and uh, a, a human who errs and, uh, and learns. So, yeah, that's that's our Prospero, a piece of him anyway. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. I feel like when the stakes are higher, we make mistakes. And mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily justify those mistakes, but it is kind of nice, especially for that character, to have a little bit more of an explanation for why he's being such an asshole. 
so yeah I thought that that was a very like like you said heartfelt and human way of addressing that character switching gears completely <laughs> aloha you as you have said have like this unique and incredibly valuable perspective of looking at this play from like living life as a native islander and for starters i'm just curious like if you have kind of broader thoughts about the two characters in this play who are also native islanders and how they're portrayed and how they're i guess generally handled it's a it's a pretty difficult topic and it's also uh, a lot of the time when you're pacific islander or specifically when you're hawaiian uh, there's only ever like one or two of you in a space at a time. I hardly ever come across other people who share my cultural identity or experience, especially when I enter theater spaces, especially when I enter rooms. And I think that says a lot, first and foremost, about the people that are getting into the room, the people who have gotten this far, and the people specifically in classical work that are doing the work, you know, that are able to do the work. So it, it's it's an extremely difficult conversation to even try and represent an experience or uh, like I mentioned earlier, just being in high school and reading the play for the first time and seeing scenes done for the first time and in table work, not being able to put a finger on the discomfort because of becoming so accustomed to working in white spaces and to shifting into white spaces, not being able to put a name on your own discomfort, not even just not being able to name a discomfort in a room in a white room because that's a hard enough thing to do but being so involved that you are unable to identify your own mm -hmm. uh, your own discomfort and your own inability to work through so when i look at the characters Caliban and Ariel from just like approaching from like a logical perspective i think in shakespeare's time showing the one quote unquote savage depiction of an indigenous person and then showing what like this is what happens when you're obedient this is what happens when you're not for Ariel being you know a lot of the tropes we see with indigenous people involve magical realism and involve you know the mysticism and exotification so with Ariel and Caliban both in on different ends of the spectrum for Ariel even just like if you look at the text, the language given to Ariel is very subservient, submissive, and poetic. Mm. So, oh, yes, master, anything you need, I will fly, like this beautiful poetry, right? And then you look at Caliban, and you see that he speaks almost ex exclusively in curses and in lamentations, in, in whatever would be considered kind of a, a broken, angry speech. And if you look at historically populations, like for my own people and for other people on specifically islands that have been colonized, Hawaii most recently having been an extremely recent case of modern day American colonialism, you see the depictions of the people who were like, America said they wanted so badly to be Americans because it allowed them freedom so you're thinking the character of Ariel, they wanted the exaltation and the honor of the freedom. And they are grateful to America for setting them free of their captivity on this island, of their inhumanity. So you see that kind of mirror of that grateful, uh, like culturally awoken savage in the, like, quote unquote, in that respect. And then you see the character of Caliban who the character himself, like at first was like, I love you. And then realized and was after he realized Prospero's intention, then became indignant and belligerent in like against that, you know, colonization. But that kind of mirrors the perspective that we see on indigenous people, on islanders, for the people who fought back and who were not quiet and who are still not quiet and are still arguing. You see police and government portraying these people, my people, angry and disquiet and dramatic and savage. You see a depiction of just kind of illegitimized emotion, displaced emotion, ungratefulness, 
That's a big theme for the character of Caliban. Um, one of the first times we see Caliban, he's just being berated for being ungrateful to his, you know, master for bringing him enlightenment uh, and language. Uh, there's never a conversation in this play where Prospero, Miranda, or anyone who sets foot on the island is thanking Caliban. There are conversations where characters in play are saying, well, look how beautiful this island can be. Uh, but there are never conversations being like, you know, let's thank the people on the island for keeping it together. Caliban is depicted as a character who's just a demon. And I think those two characters specifically, especially back in Shakespeare's time when, when you know, Africa and the Caribbean, that was an exciting thing for England to be, quote unquote, exploring those areas. I think it was a way for for people in that time to see those two lenses of the people that they encounter in these strange lands. And I do think it's harmful and it's uh, painful to deal with it as, as someone who is indigenous and who sees characters like Prospero given the range of humanity, as we spoke about earlier, human condition, like someone who errs but also learns and is also big we don't see that same grace given to characters like Caliban. Yeah, that's very real. I really appreciate you breaking all of that down. I think I've always been kind of aware of like the differences in how those two characters are treated by other characters, but I don't think I've ever thought about like how different their text is. That is such a like mind-blowing revelation for me i i don't think i'll look at those two characters the same way ever again so thank you for that as we look at prospero are there ways that you would prefer to see that character handled ah oh, that's that's a tough one because uh in recent years we've seen a lot of of shakespeare casting kind of casting a broader net which is all that I could possibly hope for uh, in the case that women and femme people are starting to play roles that are almost exclusively 10 years ago were played by men, specifically white men. And I think that that's important. A lot of the Prosperos I've seen coming out of, of um, festivals and stuff like that have been, you know, female Prosperos, which is really cool to examine through a femme person, power and magic is gonna be very different than, than seeing a man on stage uh, portraying power. And I think it's always, it's always cool to see when that happens. I also just think when I see castings of Tempest come out, specifically at Shakespeare festivals around the country, I'm seeing Caliban's, and I, I looked at a lot of festivals and I've seen a lot of Caliban's that have been uh, just broadly saying like white men between 25 and 40. And a lot of the time, they have like a very similar kind of aesthetic. Not all the time, not even nearly all the time, but just a lot. I've seen, uh, and rightfully so, companies that are afraid and, and hesitant to put people of color in the role of Caliban. But then what I see sometimes is that white people are being put in this role and they're being painted and there's, they're, you know, they're being put in, I've seen it's like makeup all up and down their arms, like making them look like there are like trees growing out. And I don't know how to feel. You never want to see one, like someone who shares your identity being portrayed as a non-human because mm -hmm. that is, touches a different chord. But it's also difficult to see when there's such a fear to put BIPOC actors in that, in that role. And then you paint the white people in this picture of savagery. It's such a slippery slope. And I have I have no idea even now how to how to feel or to wrap my head around. I think it's a case by case basis. But when it comes to casting, I think that the things that we can do is to look at characters like Prospero and examine them through different lenses than straight white men. Hmm. And I think that that's a first step, if any. Awesome. Before we move on to our last question, do you have any like wrap up thoughts? from the perspective of a native Islander? I guess I said a lot of whatever <laughs> I could think of. I'm sure a million and 10 things will come flooding in when I'm trying to fall asleep tonight. 
uh, as I continue to kind of work through this play on my own uh, and bring it back into my life after kind of just subtly putting it on the shelf for a few years. But I think that having, I always just re like reiterate the same things over and over, having the people in the room and having the people given the opportunities to be in the room, indigenous people, people of color in general, just having representation in the room for conversations like this that are difficult and having graceful like people who are really ready to receive those conversations mm. are the first step because it is important to people like me when I see a casting announcement who is on that team and uh, what kinds of stories they're telling with the text that does mean a lot to me. I love Shakespeare a lot. So yeah, if I leave with anything today, always the equity of the classical theater that we're working toward, but haven't quite found our footing in yet. Hmm. Well, keeping that in mind, I think as I was trying to pick plays for this season and knowing that like some of the plays I was picking are not necessarily problem plays the thought that I had in mind was like okay some of these plays that get labeled as problem plays we don't do them as much because they are are thought of as more challenging and a handful of them I'd like to see done more often this one does not have that problem this play gets produced all the time like I, I would bet most Shakespeare like festivals and companies throw it in like every three or four years. It's popular. And so keeping that in mind, like I feel like unlike some plays that are more problematic, like Merchant of Venice that don't get produced as much that we could potentially say, okay, let's put this one to rest and maybe not have a ton of resistance to I just don't think that will ever happen with this play. Like, even if we, if everybody acknowledged all of the problematic pieces, I just feel like there would still be people who are absolutely insistent on this play being produced. So if that's the case, how do we ensure that we have a safe rehearsal space for, for this play? Like, what do we need to keep in mind to make sure that that happens? Aloha, do you want to start us off? Uh, sure, yeah. Yeah, this play is done quite a lot. And I think it kind of it shows that like when you put magic on a thing, it kind of really does like in many cases take it away from the reality. So we see shows like Taming of the Shrew, Immersion of Venice. It's harder to like not see those characters as humans, as people. And we can recognize any ill against those characters as ill against humans. And when we have characters that are put into the, like we have roles of magical beings now, we have Ariel, we have Caliban, these like, you know, creatures really, uh, it's, it's easier to kind of take them out of the context of humanity. So I think when we're producing the play, and I think the reason it will continue to be produced is because of that magical element, and I would just love to see people lean more into the magic of the play, just like Renee's production, um, rather than into making the characters a stereotype of some kind of barbaric island practice, you know? Hmm. I think that there's a way to respectfully create magical characters without drawing their magical beingness from their identity and separating that and the bodies that we put on stage uh, in those roles, honoring the bodies that we put on stage in those roles. That's all I can really say about that. I love that. I think the word honoring is a great word. One that maybe we don't think about enough in theater. That's, that's a good word. Yeah, we as actors honor the character, but how often do we like, do we ask like, are the characters honoring us? Is the is the story we're telling doing us, like doing something for us and for our team that means something? <laughs> we just try to, especially with Shakespeare, there's this like high and mighty, like we honor this playwright. But like, what can Shakespeare give to us? I think so much, but we have to kind of prove that to people because it's a disconnect, you know? Mm -hmm. 
Yes. Uh, yeah. So yeah. hopefully that happens with some more of these tempests coming out in modern years. And I hope to see it. Hope to be in it. Ditto. I hope to see you in it. Rania, do you have closing thoughts about keeping the space safe as we produce this play? Yeah, I think um, obviously communication and collaboration in the room for, for everyone in the room, not just having a, a director say, this is my production and this is how I see it and this is how it's going to be, but a director having those conversations with actors who are playing the characters and actors having conversations with other actors <laughs> playing the playing the characters so so that we're all in the same world and we're, and we're all starting at the same um, entry point and finding our way in and also i think specifically with this play you know with with aloha saying you know it's on a case by case basis i think when you see who's in the room and what bodies are taking up what you know spaces it's like what's what is written in the text what needs to be supported and what's the trend that we've just been following because this is how we do tempest this is how we've done tempest the last 10 15 years i think when it comes to ariel and caliban that the difference between them is that caliban is of the earth and ariel is of the air they've both been imprisoned um, Ariel has been imprisoned by Sycorax, and both of them have been imprisoned by Prospero. So they're both suffering. They're both serving who they call master, and they're both they both uh, bid for Prospero. And another difference, obviously, is that Caliban has sought to. Well, this is also a tricky thing of like, what do you, what have we in the room decided that Caliban was trying to do? Was he trying to rape Miranda? Was he assaulting, did he assault Miranda? Was it an attempt? And and so it's like that conversation. What what do we all agree on has happened here and why? Um, and Caliban says, you know, I had else peopled this island with Caliban's. Again, what is what is Caliban's intention? There's no one else. You 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 know, my mother is gone. There's no one else on the island who is like me, who is of me. But I know that I can have more of me, right? What does that lead to? Do we rise up above this colonist? You know. Anyways, I think the conversation has to be as detailed and as specific as as it possibly can with everyone in the in the cast. Hmm. But back to Ariel and Caliban, I would love to see what would happen if both of them lived in the same place and were dressed the same way and painted the same, you know, whatever, whatever you choose to do, the exact same, same hair, but one flies and one doesn't. And, uh, you know, Ariel flies, Caliban doesn't. And then I wonder if we go, oh, they're really not that different. So that we sort of break this this idea in our mind of like, oh, Caliban's the dirty one and Ariel is the... At the beginning of the play, Ariel torments, uh, torments these people on the on a ship, you know, and sets a, set, tears it apart and, and uh, sets it afire. Like, sure, Ariel takes care of them, but like causes all of this havoc. How are we not to say that Ariel is not also barbaric in, in that way, even though Ariel was commanded by Prospero to do so, but, but that these two are not very different. And so that's something that I, that I would like to see in a production, but, but just also in a room with um, a conversation where we can all agree on what our version of the story is. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's, an excellent point. I think there's definitely some Shakespeare, like, comedy of errors or Twelfth Night that, like, 90% of the scenes that you're doing, you can just call it scene work and, like, call it a day, get it get it blocked and, mm -hmm. and get the bid in or whatever. But, like, there are so many more deep conversations to be had to make sure that this 
play is done thoughtfully and responsibly. Yeah, I I think that's a great place for us to wrap up today. Thank you both so much for agreeing to have this conversation. I feel like I'm going to walk away and have a lot of of new ideas about this play, which is really cool because I have a ton of experience with this play. I was not expecting to walk away with quite as much of a mind blow as I got today. So thank you both. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to be here. This episode is set to drop on June 6th, I believe. Do either of you have projects that you would like to plug? Aloha, would you like to go? Yeah, absolutely. So I just started rehearsals for a production of Cymbeline uh, with the company Midsummer Flight in partnership with Chicago Park District. So this summer, we're going to be traveling around to a bunch of different public Chicago parks performing Cymbeline for free. And we open July 7th, and I think we run through August 13th. So that'll be really, really fun. Our first read is this upcoming Monday. So I haven't seen a lot yet, but I've been doing music rehearsals for the past week. And I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited about this Cymbeline. So yes, if any listeners are in the Chicagoland area and are interested in catching some free Shakespeare in the park, we will be going to six parks around Chicago. And you can check out Midsummer, spelled with an O, Midsummer Flight company in Chicago. Check out those dates, check out those parks. Hell yeah, a little like lesser known Shakespeare touring around Chicago. That's exciting. Yeah. Rania, how about you? Yeah, um, sorry if you can hear my, my neighbor's dog barking. Um, <laughs> I am currently in a production of The Legend of Georgia McBride at Arizona Theater Company. It will run until July 19th both in Tucson, we'll start in Tucson and then um, close in Phoenix uh, in two different spaces. So check out ArizonaTheaterCompany.com for that. And uh, and then later in the fall, um, I'll be back to the DMV at Roundhouse Theater playing Kamei in the Mountaintop. That's also going to be uh, amazing. So uh, yeah, please come and see that. Hell yeah. You're all over the country. That's amazing. all right well once again thank you both for doing this i really appreciate this conversation about the tempest i believe next week we're talking about i think i said this last time but we're talking about merchant of venice and we're actually talking about merchant of venice this time we had a scheduling hiccup so we didn't get that one recorded when we thought we would but yes that's where we'll be so we will see y'all next week Thank you. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can follow Rania, Aloha, and Bulls with the Bard at the handles either on your screen or in the description. If you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe. And tune in next week as we talk with Terry and Steven about the Merchant of Venice. Until then, bye all. A thousand, thousand sides to save, oh, lay me where sad true lover, never find my grave to weep there.